Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 11th episode of Weaving Myths. Weaving Myths is a podcast focused on tabletop role-playing games, and specifically playing them through the play-by-post format. I'm your host, Nathan, and joining me today is Colin. Hello, everyone. I'm a moderator, and Colin is an administrator on Mythweavers, a play-by-post gaming website, and we're here to help you bring your game to the next level. If you're not familiar with Mythweavers, you can find it at myth-weavers.com. As always, we are joined by the impeccable text chat, which members of Mythweavers are using right now to ask questions and contribute to the discussion. Today on the agenda, we have part two of our rewards series and the Stars Without Numbers system, which we'll be talking about over the next hour or hour and a half or so. At the end, we'll open the floor to a live Q&A session from the text chat where anyone can ask us anything, be it about Mythweavers, gaming, or anything else they want to know. So, without any further ado, let's jump right in. The first topic on the agenda is part two of our rewards and loot series, which today we're going to be focusing on sci-fi, modern games, cyberpunk, like those futuristic settings. Or modern settings, as it were. Yeah, yeah, modern um, I think we have a couple notes in here very briefly about, like, zombie apocalypse type stuff, which I kind of consider sci-fi. I don't know. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. It's a gray area. Yeah, it's like, it's in that weird middle ground of sci-fi and modern. Sometimes it's magic, sometimes it's a virus. You know, it depends on flavor. Exactly. So I guess the first point we want to talk about is that in most sci-fi games, cold hard cash Translates very well to players. It's it's similar to gold in D&D, where you can do basically anything with it. Um, Agreed. And really, sci-fi can at times feel a little more restrictive than D&D 2. D&D, Pathfinder, a lot of the fantasy systems come preloaded with all these great magic rewards that the game master can just pull straight from the book. Whereas in a sci-fi setting, you got to get a little more creative with your money. You got to figure out like, okay, do I want to upgrade my ship or do I want to buy a new gun? It it just depends on how you want to take it. But in general, the most common thing people get is cold hard cash. Then another thing that often is not necessarily a reward in and of itself, but you can apply upgrades to are starships. In all sci-fi games, everyone's got a starship. I mean, the players aren't going to get very far in most games if they don't have a method to get from point A to point B between planets. And another great uh, reward that can be used if you don't want to give cash is, say, they do a wonderful favor for a faction, accomplish some mission of daring do. That faction may offer a more expensive upgrade that can be applied to the ship. And I would like to make a note that Starship's are basically the reason that sci-fi games happen, basically. So it's the vehicle through which players are able to go on adventures and go places. And at face value, there's really nothing stopping your players from just outright selling the ship and retiring early. Because, if I understand correctly, most starships are usually extremely valuable. Depending. You do get some settings, Firefly being a favorite example, where... You know, yeah, it's a starship, but it's that ancient, decades-old, obsolete model that everyone views as a death trap. That's true, actually. Um, my real-life Starfinder game actually just started off with us cobbling together a bare-bones ship from the broken pieces of another ship, and I don't think anyone would consider that valuable by any stretch. 
And then you can also set it up in a way if your players are the types that like to completely go off the railroad tracks, usually my parties, um, the Starship can be the equivalent of, say, a company car. They can't really sell it. They don't own it. It could also be a family heirloom or an inheritance. There's sentimental value attached for one of the players. Or a fun twist is if you've got a Starship with a hyper-intelligent AI, maybe the AI kind of likes the meat sacks it currently has. It doesn't really want to train a new crew. Now, on the flip side of that, with sci-fi, pretty much everything has a value of some kind. So, like, military armor or, like... I'm going to say cell phones, but really I mean like communication pads and tablets. Those all have value, but you really don't want to give your players the freedom to loot every single compad and every single piece of armor they find. Otherwise, you end up with your players flying around as a flying garage sale, and I don't think that's a good way to do rewards. As with any system too, however, players can invest in a community, be it planet side, be it a space station, they find something they want to invest in and, you know, maybe they either want to help improve the selection of goods available for a particular vendor so that they can benefit from it later, or maybe they're looking for a home base. It's also possible a home base could be a reward of itself. They help a settlement, that settlement greatly appreciates it, it's a safe haven for when they need to go to ground and hide from whatever authorities they just upset. Sure, or like if they do something as simple as escorting a trader from one system to another, then perhaps at the end that trader offers them a discount or gives them access to a select few items that normally the trader wouldn't part with, but because of their service, they are willing to part with it. Now, I will say, sci-fi... I I know we said we were going to talk about like cyberpunk and sci-fi and modern and all that, so... um. Lost my train of thought. Okay, we're just going to jump straight into the cyberpunk aspect because I cannot remember what I was going to say there. Some smooth tangent from point A to point B that's now lost. Yep, lost to eternity. (laughs) Oh, actually, you know, I did want to point out something I saw in the text chat. That Arcticus said that most players view their starship as home base. And I think that's a really good way to describe it, especially in, like, Firefly or Stars Without Number style systems where the basic premise is get a ship, get a job, and keep flying. And with starships especially, it's so hard to acquire them that keeping one is should be the priority for some systems. So sometimes a reward can even just be, hey, you get to keep your ship. Like, maybe they stole it, and they do a good thing for the people who are after them, and they say, okay, we'll let you off the hook this one time. And that's a reward in and of itself. Cyberpunk's all you, man. Not my area. Yeah, so I'm gonna take over most of the conversation for this part. Um, So I'm gonna use Shadowrun as an example, because that's the one I'm most familiar with, and I've run both real-life and play-by-post games with Shadowrun, and rewards for it are pretty specific to the setting. So, in terms of actual physical items you can give out for Shadowrun, equipment and money are basically the extent of it. Um, you can get creative with, like, magic and say, okay, this you helped this spirit and now they're going to help you out in return. 
But for the actual physical things you can give your players as a reward, it's basically limited to equipment and money. So most of the rewards you give in Shadowrun are more metaphysical than actual hard rewards that you hand out. And I will admit that, yes, everybody's happy when you hand out a brand new gun or that you give them the money and they go buy the latest assault rifle. So those are good rewards. But for for cyberpunk games, I found most uh, Arcticus just nailed it on the head. You should give them more D6s instead of money or equipment. And with, yeah, with Shadowrun, that's exactly what you want to do. You want to, instead of, say, giving out extra gold for a really awesome role-playing event, instead you give them more karma, which lets them improve their characters. So instead of being kind of good at hacking, now they're pretty dang good at hacking, or similar examples. If, if we back up just for a moment from karma, which is a kind of an advancement mechanic in Shadowrun, sometimes completing a job and doing what they, the party sets out to do is a reward in and of itself. So if they get double-crossed by the Mr. Johnson, then getting revenge on the Mr. Johnson, that's a huge reward. The players have accomplished a goal that their characters have. The unspeakable ass, wait, you mean we can get paid in something other than Aztec script? Uh, I hope so. I, I've i never actually given out Aztec script, believe it or not. <laughs> anyway, so back to what I was saying, like, so getting revenge or stealing a particularly valuable piece of information or equipment, well, perhaps equipment, it depends a lot on the Shadowrun, but information and uh, secrets and revenge trade just as easily in the Shadowrun world as money and equipment. So rewards you give out there aren't necessarily physical for a cyberpunk setting. It's just as easily a a juicy secret on the next megacorp that they want to get. Now, if we move on to, like, karma, which is how characters in Shadowrun advance and get more powerful, there are a lot of ways you can hand that out because one of the biggest complaints I've heard about Shadowrun is that the advancement's too slow and it takes too long to see any noticeable difference in your character. So for anyone who's not familiar with Shadowrun, the way it works is you get a certain number of points to create your character and then as you do jobs and complete missions you get a few more points, and then you get a couple more points, and then you get a few more points, and finally, you might be able to upgrade something significantly. So, something I've noticed is you can give those advancement points, called karma, more freely than perhaps money or equipment. To keep the players feel like they're getting rewards and feeling a sense of progression, and I don't know how many people actually know this about Shadowrun, But money translates to karma, and the conversion rate for one point of karma is about 366 new yen. And so if you kind of round the numbers up a little bit, someone can pay about 400 new yen and get training in a field. So like, like the unspeakable says, it takes forever to get karma to submerge. Sure, so at that point you just say, okay, I have a couple thousand new yen laying around, I'm gonna pay for karma... I'm going to convert that money into karma, which in character can be done as like training. So they go to a certain shaman and say, hey, I want to do this. And the shaman's like, okay, I'll help you get to that point. 
and they convert money into karma to advance their character faster. And then there are obviously the other things you can do with karma. With karma. I mean, you, you can give achievements. You can be like, hey, your character did something really awesome, so I'm going to give you an extra karma for that. Or you can reward creative thinking and entertainment value. So in my real-life games of Shadowrun, there have been several moments where the entire table has been rolling with laughter. And I've given out extra karma for that because it's just so hilarious. So The Unspeakable brings up an interesting point that mages and technomancers need a lot of karma, whereas samurai and deckers need a lot of nuyen. So that's an interesting balance that I don't think a lot of systems have, where in, like, D&D, everybody wants magic items, but in, like, Shadowrun, not everyone wants a lot of karma. They'd rather have the money instead of the karma. So I'm going to throw this out there as an idea. If they want to convert karma into money... You just use the same conversion. You say one karma is 400 money. And then the character can be the one doing the training. They can help a new Shadowrunner learn a new skill. Or, you know, something along those lines. So they can convert it back and forth without too much effort. Okay, I think I have covered the Shadowrun stuff. That was a pretty thorough overview. I nodded and smiled a lot on my end. (laughs) Yeah, Colin, you did an excellent job over there. Fake it till you make it. <laughs> um, Dark Myth Battler, I'm going to answer this real quick, says that in 5th edition Shadowrun, the guide recommends giving more karma for good actions, like helping people. And it depends a lot on your game. So if you're playing Mirror Shades Shadowrun, then you want to stick it to the man as much as possible, right? Whereas if you're playing, like, Brown trench coat, which for those of you who aren't familiar, is kind of something along the lines of Guardians of the Galaxy. And then you might be more inclined to be like, okay, these guys are good guys and they know they're good guys, so they you give them more points for doing things that good guys would do. Now, Pink Mohawk, which is the far opposite end of the spectrum from Mirror Shades, is uh, basically complete chaos. I've never actually run a Pink Mohawk game, and... I'm not interested to find out about it, so it's uh, it's kind of like just do whatever you want, and if it sounds cool, you can do it. All right, so let's move on to the more modern-day stuff, so like D20 Modern or Zombie Survival, those types of things. Um, Before we get into it, I do want to mention that we could probably do an entire segment on zombie games, because I was typing up some of the notes for this section, and I realized there's a lot to say about zombies and there's a lot that we could do with that, but maybe in a future episode. That could be an entire dedicated segment. Yep, definitely. So anyway, modern games, moving along. Well, with a lot of the modern games, rewards in the form of money, equipment, fancy items aren't always a necessary thing. A lot of modern games tend to get fueled more by the reward of the story. You accomplish this insanely difficult task. You did some things that looked really, really cool. That sort of intangible reward. Yeah, so like in in I'm gonna reference this a lot because it's the easiest example I can come up with, is like in a zombie survival game, the reward is surviving the zombies. So it's not necessarily, hey, we got a fancy new gun, or hey, we upgraded our starship. It's instead, wow, I'm so glad we didn't die back there. At the same time, it can also be, hey, we found a place that we can turn into a base 
against the zombies. You know, some sort of safe haven, an old military bunker. There's always that desire to have some kind of home base to operate from. Definitely. Or, like, perhaps their home... Uh, I'm going to use this zombies as an example again, because it's so easy. But perhaps their home base gets invaded by zombies, and they have to rescue some people who are trapped inside. And suddenly, your players become friends with these NPCs who they wouldn't normally be friends with. So... Zombie survival, one of the strongest tropes of zombie survival is it's not just about the zombies. It's about how society breaks down when there's no one in charge. So having friends in a zombie survival setting is more important than a new gun. So uh, people themselves can be rewards. They can say, hey, I know you. I trust you. I'll vouch for you when we go to this place that the people don't know you and don't trust you. I had something, and it's gone now. We are on a roll tonight. I blame you. Now, for true modern-day games with normal people living normal lives, I, I'll i admit I really don't have a lot of experience with that style of game. Because, I don't know, maybe fighting a dragon just seems more exciting to me than, hey, I'm Joe Blow, let's go solve a murder. You can, however... There are a lot of modern settings where you've got twists on it. One of the big ones, which I've still yet to play the system, but I love the series, is the Dresden Files. You know, you've got your modern day, but then you add in a fantasy twist to it. And there's also, you know, modern games where the setting will add in a sci-fi alien twist. There's a lot of things that you can do with the modern setting. That's very true. I hadn't really... so. I'll admit, when I think of Dresden Files or, like, Alien Invasion type stuff, I don't really put those in the category of modern day, but they really are. If it's happening in the modern time frame, I'd call it a modern game with fantasy or sci-fi elements added. Yeah. Uh, people in chat are pointing out World of Darkness and Call of Cthulhu. Uh, if I understand Call of Cthulhu correctly, that's more like late 19th century, I think? You can set it in quite a few different points in time. I've seen Call of Cthulhu games that are present day still. Oh, okay. Tiffany Cordes says 1920s, but it can be modern. And yeah, okay. That, that makes sense. You can set it basically whenever you want. I mean, it's Call of Cthulhu. The central point is research eldritch horrors and lose your mind at some point. Or die. Sounds about right. <laughs> and... Mr. Andrew J. also brings up another good point. Many superhero games would fall into the modern setting. That brings up an interesting question. So say you have a group of superheroes working together to accomplish something. What do you give superheroes when they're done with their job and you want to reward them somehow? Do you just give them more superpowers? The unspeakable says that you give them a helicarrier. I mean, sure, if you want to go with the Avengers example. Don't say the name so loud, you'll bring the copyright lawyers. I think I'm allowed to say the Avengers under copyright. Am I not allowed to say that? Is that a thing? Just you. Oh, just me, I see. Okay, Dark... And oh, go ahead. Go. Alright, uh, Dark Myth Battler says that I think that's a game where the success is the reward. And yeah, I could see that, where, you know, you beat the big bad evil guy and... Yay, we're heroes! We we did it! We saved the day! That's the reward. Along with the experience so they can add additional twists to their powers. Sure, sure. So, like, maybe Superman's laser vision is not just laser anymore. Maybe it's now 
ice vision or something. Well, I mean, the last dedicated Superman movie, he took down entire skyscrapers. I'd assume he got experience for everyone in him. If you go by traditional D&D standards, yeah, that's exactly how that works. <laughs> All right, let me throw a question out there for the text chat. Uh, if you could have a superpower, what superpower would it be? PG-13, please. Tiffany Corda says, flight. The unspeakable says, same as ants. I'm not sure what that means. Uh, dark Ten myth- times body strength. Oh, gotcha. Uh, dark Myth Battler says, the ability to spontaneously summon armchairs. I really like that one. Uh, Mick the Rogue wants the ability to freeze time for everybody except himself. Oh, Trains points out that do you get the required secondary powers? For example, if you have super speed, you wouldn't catch on fire from air friction. Uh, yeah, assume you have the required secondary superpowers. I'm just dreading Chimis. <laughs> it's probably like the ability to summon bacon or something. All right, Colin, what if you could have a superpower, what would it be? I'd go with the Wolverine, the regeneration. That's a pretty dang good one. I mean, practical immortality and things can't kill you. Yeah, that's pretty dang good. Um, you know, I've always really liked Professor X's set of powers, so I think I would have to go with that one. You know, I like Mick the Rogues right there, um, the ability to take down big government Nathan. Oh, jeez. <laughs> oh, 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 my goodness. Dark Myth Battler says, you mean being wheelchair bound? Or, and Mick the Rogue says, or just bald. Uh, preferably without those. I mean, don't those come as attached secondary powers? I guess they technically do. But, okay, let's think about this, for real. If he has telepathy and can levitate objects, or not telepathy, that's telekinesis. If he has telekinesis and can levitate objects, does he really need a wheelchair? Can't he just levitate himself and then float around? Oh, he doesn't have telekinesis? All right, shows how much I know about superheroes. I'll ask an innocent question, Nathan said. (laughs) <laughs> it will be fun, he said. <laughs> All right. Do we have anything else we want to mention before we move on to the next topic? God, no. Give the text chat more time. They're monsters tonight. <laughs> hey, we want text chat engagement, remember? I remember you said something about that Hey, at some point in time. Yeah, that was earlier. Did you forget two hours ago, Colin? Possible. Jimmy points out that text chat was plenty engaged with him. I think we're doing pretty good. Everybody's been answering questions and talking amongst themselves so far, so I'm pretty happy. All right, let's move on. All right, the next topic we've got is we want to take a very close look at a system that has been gaining popularity on Mythweavers, and it's had several games in the last couple months pop up, and we really wanted to shine a spotlight on it because I think it's an excellent system. I know Colin thinks it's an excellent system. And I think more people need to give it a go. And that system is Stars Without Number. So, Colin, introduce us to Stars Without Number. All right. Stars Without Number is a sci-fi setting with the idea, you know, humanity got extremely far with technology. They discovered the ability to tunnel through space and exposure to that process created psionics, brought in psionic warriors, psionic scientists, all that stuff, and eventually psionics were running everything, all the advanced technology, which worked great up until an event that they called the Scream came just ripping through the known galaxy, wiped out 
all the psychics or drove them mad. The game setting takes place 600 years after the screen. So many, many worlds were destroyed. Many worlds were knocked back in their level of technology. And the game takes place right when everyone's just starting to get back to the stars from those planets that maintain the technology to do so. So on the mechanical side of things, we have, it's primarily a 2D6 system. So it's, I mean, I don't think it goes much more complicated than that, does it? I mean, maybe occasionally you need a D20, Colin. Is that right? A D20 factors in for your attack rolls, all your skill checks, and virtually everything else either runs off of either 2D6 or stuff like your saves are actually a DC that the opponent has to defeat. Wait, are you telling me I've been rolling my skill checks wrong? You've been rolling 2D6. Oh, okay. I thought you were saying that I had to roll a d20 for those. And I was like, no. No, no. Attacks only. Okay. All right. <laughs> so characters for this system, they fall into three and with the upcoming revised edition four categories. And those are experts, psychics, and warriors. And the revised edition adds adventurer, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But experts, psychics, and warriors, they're pretty self-explanatory. So experts are your skill monkeys. They can fix things. They can pilot ships. They can uh, be medics. Experts are basically catch-all class for, I need to do something like fix people. So I'm an expert. Uh, psychics are pretty self-explanatory. They're psychics. They have psychic abilities. And Correct me if I'm wrong, but most psychics are not well-liked, is that right? It's more of, you know, it's been 600 years, there used to be academies and such, now now you're looking more at more the one-on-one mentorship. It's almost similar to the Star Wars Jedi Master Padawan relationship. There's not, you still need someone to guide you to keep you from losing your sanity as you come into your powers, but... It's not really well-structured, and on worlds that really got knocked down in technology, say to medieval periods, you might have a lot of superstition arising. Gotcha. So, depending on where you are, they can be viewed badly. And last but not least, warriors, also pretty straightforward. These are your gun-toting, sword-slinging, fighting people. Uh, that's a warrior. They punch things. <laughs> and take the hits to protect the experts. Yeah, that's a good point. So once you've nailed down, we're going to, I guess we're going to briefly go through the character creation process, quote unquote. So once you've nailed down which archetype you're going to be, are they called classes? They're called classes. Okay. So once you've nailed down your class, then you get to customize your character further with backgrounds and skill packages and you kind of build. So there's a bunch of different backgrounds that you can pick from ranging from bounty hunter to mechanic to I think there's like a classically schooled type person where they went to college and everything. And, oh, I guess ultimately what I'm getting at here is you can customize your character a lot and it's super easy to do. I think in the span of 30 minutes while reading the system and teaching it to myself, I managed to put together a character that was mechanically sound. So it's not like D&D 3.5 where you spend a week going through all the rule books and building a character piece by piece. It's very straightforward. You start here and you end here and your character's done. And I'll point out, I didn't even need to correct his character when he finished. Really? No, it was good to go. Wow, okay. I 
did better than I thought then. Because <laughs> I thought for sure there was something I messed up in there. So, obviously, experts pretty self-explanatory. Warriors self-explanatory. Psychics, the character creation with those, you go into... There's different disciplines. So there's, for instance, a biopsionics discipline, where the lowest tier of that, you can bring someone back from the brink of death or even very recent death. And, you know, there's mind reading, there's teleportation, they're all different branches. So when you make your psychic, you choose two different um, psionic power paths, and those are what you work on. When you master one of them, you choose a new one to start working on. And for the people who aren't quite so interested in the psychics or psionics, there is also an entire rule set for building and customizing your own starships. So there's, I mean, it's probably one of the most detailed starship building rule sets I've ever seen. Uh, I think the only thing that comes close currently is Starfinder, and even Starfinder isn't as detailed as Stars Without Number. Maybe Traveler? Yeah, maybe Tiffany Cordes says Traveler, maybe. And I can't speak to Traveler because when it came down to choosing a sci-fi system, I actually chose this one over Traveler. I do intend to look at Traveler eventually when I find that free time thing people talk about. It's elusive. I'm not sure it exists. (laughs) Now, on the flip side of that, for the GM, there's rules for basically everything you could possibly need, ranging from creating factions to creating entire adventures... Uh, you can create new alien races, uh, entire planets, and in the giant scope of things, you can create entire interstellar sectors for the players to explore. And it has rules for all of those things. So you can very quickly go through and flesh out your little corner of space. And it's not just rules, it also has arguably the most comprehensive die roll tables to make these things rapidly that I have seen in any system ever. Um, I'm, there could always be a system with which I'm unfamiliar, but as far as I know, it's just rapid creation stuff. Oh, I need a faction. Let me roll 5d20s, and I've got a full faction, how they're organized, what their ideals are, just everything. Um, it's one of those things that's so useful that I know a few people have actually borrowed the die roll tables for things like factions for use in other game systems just to rapidly generate content that they need on the fly. Now, I'll say that I'm I'm not as experienced with Stars Without Number as Colin, but when we were doing research to figure out what we were going to talk about, this that was the first time I saw these tables that you can roll on, and they're the coolest thing I've ever seen. And I am planning on using them almost immediately for my Starfinder game. So that's another really cool thing about this system. It's not all of its rule, almost all of its rules, are not necessarily required to be used with stars without number. They can be easily adapted and changed for any system, which is not something I think many people can say about a system that they use. The system also has pretty straightforward, easy-to-understand combat rules, and they cover using it with or without a map. So, I mean, if you're descriptive enough, you don't need a map. It makes it great for play-by-post. Another element, though, that makes it fantastic is on drivethroughrpg.com, 
there's actually a free version of the rule set. It costs you nothing. You just have to make a drive through RPG account. Nathan's going to be dropping that link in the text chat in a moment. That is the wrong thing. <laughs> All right, and now we have posted it twice in the text chat. Sniped. <laughs> so, and I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but the revised version of this system is coming out very soon, and that will also be available for free. There will be a free version. There's an important distinction. You've got a free version, you've got a paid version. The free version has everything you need to both play and to run the game. The core edition of the current version and the eventual revised edition give a lot more depth that you can add in. The core version of the current edition goes more into stuff like mechs and combat robot suits, that sort of thing, that the free version does not include. So you don't need the core edition to run the game. You can still use the free version, and it's got all the details you would need. Now, the revised version, which... As Arcticus points out, he may have dropped too much money on that Kickstarter, and I can sympathize completely. The revised version, you get more into expanded content. Um, they add a new adventure class, which lets you pretty much take half the benefits of, say, a warrior and half the benefits of an expert and mash them together. But it is still backwards compatible. And the original edition stuff is forwards compatible, so there's a lot of splat books that exist for the original version. Those are all usable with zero changes in the revised edition. That was a big thing they focused on when adding to the system. Now, if I may, to tie back to our previous topic today, a good style for rewards for Stars Without Numbers is to give things out more incrementally and to players work harder for things, maybe than they would otherwise. Because, from what I understand, Stars Without Number, it's kind of a, a gritty, like, hardcore system, almost. It's, like, not rules-wise. Rules-wise, it's extremely light, but the setting is kind of dark and grim. So, rewards come fewer and farer between in this type of system. They really can, um... There's a lot more of that scavenging, paycheck-to-paycheck feel. But, you know, rewards, as was mentioned when we were discussing sci-fi games rewards earlier, you know, ship refits and upgrades can be a great reward. But then also you've got stuff like pre-tech, which is the technology before the scream and everything fell backwards. That's a great semi-rare reward, and then... For the psychics in the party, there's also Psytech, which is a very rare reward that can be something that's really sought after. It can even be the point of an entire quest, mission, contract, what have you. All right. Well, I think we have just about covered it. Do you have anything else you wanted to add? Well, one good point that Arcticus just brought up that we really should have mentioned is Stars Without Number has one incredible benefit in that it is very rules-light. But the other thing is, if you're looking at running in this system, you have to understand that combat is very, very lethal. And what Arcticus just pointed out is that almost everyone can be killed with a max damage hit from a single, a single shot at max damage from a semi-auto pistol. It's a very 
gritty feel. And as he points out again, that's a 1d6 plus one pistol is enough to kill most players. Even leveling up, you know, there's still, there's this mortality that you have to be prepared for in this game. That definitely reinforces the idea that it's kind of a almost grim, dark setting. <laughs> Arcticus says everyone gets a chance to die equally. Yeah, gunfights in the middle of a street without cover, which the first game I ran was a real-life tabletop game, and they literally got into a firefight outnumbered in the middle of a street without cover, and then were flabbergasted when three of them were down within two rounds. Sounds about right. I don't pull punches. <laughs> All right. Anything else before? I do not think so. All right. So with that, we will move straight into the game of the week. This week's game of the week is Gotham's Finest, being run by Arcane Desperado. Gotham's Finest is set in an alternate universe of the DC Comics where Batman has disappeared as the protector of Gotham City. As a result, it's up to the players to take on the dark and gritty crimescape that is rising in the Dark Knight's absence. The game is heavily inspired by Christopher Nolan's darker take on the Batman universe, which, if you're not familiar, is the Batman Begins slash The Dark Knight slash The Dark Knight Rises movies. Gotham's Finest is a fate game, which is a system that has been lauded as one of the best for play-by-post games due to its extreme flexibility and focus on characters and their stories. Also of note, I know by reputation that Arcane Desperado is an excellent game master, and I expect that will show in this game. Something that especially caught my eye is that the game will be exploring the darker nature of Gotham City while staying within the rules of Mythweavers, which is always nice. I've always been a fan of the grim outlook Christopher Nolan went with for his movies, and that tone and style are going to be a fantastic medium for plenty of adventures within this setting. Arcane Desperado is looking for three players for this exploration of the dark side of Gotham, and applications for the game close on November 17th. So there's plenty of time to get in an application. As always, I'll put the link to this game in the Discord chat and in the relevant links section of the forum post when the recording of this episode goes live. Yep, uh, Colin beat me to it. The link is in the Discord chat. Someone's got to pick up your slack. Hey, I was doing the script, man. Alright, and with that, it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the evening, the question and answer segment. So... Obviously, you're allowed to ask any question you'd like. It can be about Mythweavers. It can be about a topic we talked about this evening. It can be about a topic we talked about in previous episodes. Uh, it can be just about anything you want. Uh, but first, we always have to start with the mandatory question of what's making us happy this week. So, Colin, would you like to go first? Well, I'm personally thrilled that we have now added some Discord-specific moderators. We have added Chi and Sandrinan. And it's just nice to have, you know, a little extra help. You know, I get a lot of uh, messages middle of the night, and it's nice that there's going to be others that can kind of help spread the load a bit. And also, I'm almost over my cold from the start of the week. You know, I noticed all, it seems like a lot of my friends were getting sick this week. I don't know what's going on. There must be a bug going around or something. But uh, what's making me happy this week is those Stars Without Number roll tables. I am so excited to use them that I actually have already used them. And they're awesome. So, <laughs> yeah, that's what's got me happy this week. What Nathan is saying is the furthest he got into that rule book until tonight was the character creation and combat rules. I wouldn't go as far as to say I made it to combat. 
Nathan will cover combat when I start having people shoot at the party. Yeah, I'll I'll read that when we get there. No big deal. <laughs> All right. So with that, bring on the questions. Feel free to ask anything you'd like about any system, any topic, anything you would like. All right. I've seen this joke around, and I'm going to lay this one to rest right now. So Chimi asks, are you going to get around to unlocking the channels anytime soon? And I don't know why people don't know what's going on with that. But on Mythweavers, on the Mythweavers Discord server, almost every channel has a little lock icon on it. All that means is that it's private and only certain people can access it. Now, 99% of the server is like that which means that only people who are verified on the server can access those channels. Tiffany points out it's over all of Discord. That's something they kind of slipped into one of the more recent updates. Yeah, so all that means is that if if a, if a channel is hidden from one specific role, uh, and when I say role, I mean like uh, we have like Mythweavers members, we have Discord moderators, we have the bots... Those are all categories of users, and if it's hidden from any group of users, that lock shows up. And certain individuals, especially the ones named Chimi, like to keep asking me why the channels are locked. Okay, um, I'm going to read this question, and maybe Colin can help me out with it, but I know I don't have an answer for it. Uh, Trains asks, is there any benefit to using nested arrays in mutants and masterminds? I honestly don't have an answer. Um, I played 3rd Edition Mutants and Masterminds about six years ago. It's been a while. Um, I honestly don't remember the rules. And I've never played Mutants and Masterminds, so I got nothing for you. Sorry. All right, Mick the Rogue wants to know, have we gone mad with power? If so, how does it feel? Uh, I haven't. Have you, Colin? I mean, I've been mad for over a decade, but, you know, not with power so much. <laughs> All right, we can take a few more questions, probably three or four more questions. Okay, Chimi wants to know, is Stars Without Number really that great? If so, why does it have D&D stats like how a grandpa might make a game? So here's the thing about D&D stats. They cover 99.9% .9 of situations so if it's not broke, don't fix it, right? So the fact that Stars Without Number copies strength, charisma, intelligence, wisdom, blah, 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 it's not a, a flaw in the system. It's that they're using something that has been shown to work, and they want to make sure that it works. I mean, uh, Tiffany, kinda, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say you kind of cut off that. Well, I'm just, I'm just trying to think about it because, like... Is there anything really wrong with using strength, constitution, charisma, intelligence? I mean, I can't think of any reason why that would be bad. There's not really anything bad with it. There's just, there are games that don't even touch that framework anymore. Well, sure, and there's nothing wrong with that either. Like, uh, Tiffany Corda points out that Fate and Powered by the Apocalypse would say that those system, those systems of knowing what your stats are don't matter, and that's fine, but in a system where the stats do matter, use what works. That's a fair point. All right, Arcticus asks, would you rather be a griffin, a dragon, or a phoenix? 
I'm going to go with Dragon. Dragon. Torment the uh, villagers, steal their gold. You know, there's appealing stuff there. Oh, and you live for a long time. Depending on the setting, dragons are immortal. Well, and then every now and then someone comes to fight you and you get kind of a nice little snack, crunchy on the outside, gooey on the inside. Especially you add a little heat to it and it comes out just right. <laughs> All right, uh, Colin, I don't know if you'll have an answer for this question. But uh, Trains wants to know, who is your main in Super Smash Bros. Melee for the Nintendo GameCube? Fox McCloud. Oh, wow. I was honestly not expecting you to have an answer for that one. <laughs> uh, my main is Kirby, because Kirby is love. Kirby, Kirby is a cheating little pink bastard. No, Kirby is awesome, and you should feel bad for saying. Kirby is more obnoxious than Fox just standing back and pelting with that low damage blaster. I stand by Kirby. <laughs> All right, I think we have time for just a couple more questions. I mean, Grok would be a warrior, Chimi. Yeah, Chimi asks, what kind of character would Grok play in Stars Without Number? Yeah, there's nothing else he would play besides a warrior. That doesn't make any sense. Unless, unless he wants to pretend to be smart and plays an expert. Experts are squishy, though, and Grok isn't squishy. That's true. Although I would think, though, that uh, Grok wouldn't be carrying around a big axe or sword. I think he'd be more the guy carrying around the rocket launcher and stars without number. I could definitely see that. And he would name his rocket launcher Vera. <laughs> if you didn't get that reference, you need to go watch Firefly. Uh, oh, this is a really good question. Dark Myth Battler wants to know, how did you become a part of Mythweavers? You go first while I figure out how to answer that. Okay, uh... I'll explain a little why he has to think about that. There are certain things we don't talk about on Mythweavers. Uh, Colin's backstory involves those things we don't talk about. Um, but for me, I joined Mythweavers in 2007 as a regular user, and uh, I didn't use the site for probably four years. And then in 2011, I came back to it and started using it really heavily, and I think my gaming history shows that I started my first game in 2011. I think it was like February and yeah, February of 2011, I think was when my first game started and I've been a member ever since. Now, if you want to know how I became a staff member, I don't really know how it happened, but at some point they were looking for people to help regulate the wiki that Mythweavers has. And if you're not familiar with that, it's it's a system that needs people to kind of keep an eye on it sometimes. But they were looking for people to help help out with that, and I became part of that crew. And slowly over time, people stopped helping out with that, and I was one of, I think, three people left. And my activity was starting to, to die down. And Rodrigo approached me and said, hey, if... If, if we made you a full staff member, would you become more active? And I said yes, and here we are. I'm a moderator, and I have been for a while. I don't remember exactly when that was. Uh, Chimi, my user number, this is public knowledge, by the way, anybody can get anyone's user number, is 3225. So I was in the first 4,000 people to join Mythweavers. Chimi, my user number is 114. And Jimmy, who's got the podcast? Careful, he's going to call you a dictator again. <laughs> I 
Uh, they're already calling me Big Government Nathan, so I guess that's going to stick for a while. All right, so how I came to Mythweavers. I came to Mythweavers right when it started. There was another website. There was a split for reasons not discussed. I was part of the exodus that moved to Mythweavers. We're not really going into details because we don't bash other sites. Yep, so Colin was part of that first wave. And then let's see how I became an admin. Well, back in 2009, I was really, really dumb, and I knew Rodrigo. Back in the day, we used to have a live chat on the site itself. There was a core group. I was one of the ones that talked in there all the time, and back in 2009, I was really dumb, and I volunteered to help Rigo. And I volunteered to help out his member relations, deal with infraction appeals, disputes, etc., 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 and eventually Rodrigo said, hey, you should really be an admin to do this, and I haven't been able to escape since. He won't let me go. <laughs> I think he's afraid that if he did, he wouldn't have someone to replace you. Oh, God, no. No one's as crazy as I was. <laughs> All right, we can probably take one more question. Yeah, we can take one more question. And while someone types that question, I would like to point out, I do actually like my job. I love the PR aspect, talking with everyone. It really isn't bad at all. It's fun. Sometimes I have to take out a stick and hit certain moderators whose names begin and end with an N. But, you know, that's just discipline. Hey, man, most of my ideas are pretty good. Like this Discord that we're so conveniently using for the podcast... All right, let's let's uh, get into uh, how the Discord happens. So Nathan came out and said, "Hey, you know, it'd be really cool to have the live chat. You know, let's look at using a Discord." I said, "Sure, you know, we'll look at setting up a Discord and we'll see what Rodrigo thinks." And Rodrigo said, "Yeah, sure, that sounds good." Nathan proposed the idea, and Rodrigo said, "Sure," in a two-hour period. Next thing I know, Nathan's messaging me going. Hey, the Discord's up. Well, it, there's a little bit more backstory to that than I said, hey, we should do this, and then it happened. So, a long time ago, Mythweavers had a shout box, which was basically a live chat service built into the site. And that got taken down for many reasons, if my understanding is correct. No, it was really the basic reason at the time. It was really one reason was server resources and... Finances. I mean, we pay a pretty good amount to keep the servers up and running, and at the time that the shoutbox got taken down, it would have cost far too much to have the power we needed to keep running the shoutbox. It was bogging down everything else. That's fair. So, so back in the day, we had that, and then it went away, and we haven't had anything like it since then. And then... And then it basically happened, like Colin said. I said, hey, we should do this Discord thing so people can talk. And here we are. Yeah, the, the Discord came into being over the span of, I think, two hours. Yeah, it was two hours. Next thing I know, boom. And Shimi points out there was an IRC. It was just not officially recognized. Yeah, the IRC... It was good, but I think it only, at its height, only had about 20 people using it, and it was never officially sanctioned by Mythweavers. 
so it kind of fell apart. But now that we have the Discord, it's it's basically completely replaced the IRC. I don't know if I bet you there are probably people still using the IRC, but no. Okay, Chad is telling me that no, the IRC is dead. So that's you fine. killed it, you monster. Well, honestly, it's probably for the best because ultimately Discord is better. It's easier to use. It's got more powerful tools that let us do things like set up Mythweaver's bot, who handles pretty much everything the staff doesn't want to do. So Yeah, pretty much. And then, you know, the stuff I don't want to do, I pawn off on the moderators. I mean... I was going to say, hang on now. You pawn it off on me, and I take care of it. (laughs) It's not my fault that I'll toss out, hey, could someone look at this, and you just respond so quickly. It's because I have no life. I have nothing better to do. Uh, Basil Bottletop points out that IRC always felt like a steeper learning curve. And yeah, IRC is just a pain in the butt to set up in general. Because you got to like download a specific program, and then you got to input the exact address of the channel you want to join. Whereas Discord, you just send someone a link, they click it, and boom, they're in. All right, well, I think we are... Unfortunately, out of time for the questions. Uh, but if you have more questions, feel free to stick around for Mythweavers After Dark, where we will open up the microphones so everybody can talk, and you can ask more questions and get more answers, and we will... Uh, Trains asks, what time is Mythweavers After Dark? It is immediately after the show ends. So we are very quickly coming up on the end of the show. It will be immediately afterwards. So, before we wrap up for the evening, I would like to take just a moment to remind everyone that Weaving Myths has a Patreon. It is made possible by Patreon. Uh, We have several tiers of rewards, ranging from us taking your topic suggestions more seriously than non-patrons, all the way up to receiving a free copy of my latest novel. Additionally, when we reach certain monthly goals, we'll be putting out extra content that is exclusive to patrons. Most recently, we uploaded the recording of Weaving Myths Does Tabletop, where Mordai ran a Roaring Twenties steampunk heist game for Ruben, Colin, and myself. Contributions start at as little as $1 per month, so it doesn't take much at all to show your support. The patrons over at Patreon help make this podcast possible, so if you haven't already, I'd encourage you all to check it out at patreon.com slash mythweavers. Additionally, any Money we bring in over the operating costs of the podcast go directly to support Mythweavers. So you will see that reflected in, we're going to do, right now we're planning a couple contests and giveaways. So keep an eye out for those and people will have the opportunity to win some sweet loot. Uh, one last thing I should note, Weaving Myths is, always has been, and will always continue to be free. Full episodes are always uploaded to SoundCloud within two days of the episode being recorded, and all normal episodes will always be available for download or streaming free of charge. So thank you everyone so much for joining us today. It's been a blast, and we appreciate all of the comments and questions from the text chat as always. I'm Nathan, and I've been joined by the magnificent Colin. It's been fun as always, folks. Thanks for listening, and keep on weaving those myths.